Okay, welcome. Today uh, I'm going to be talking with Riley McGlashan, uh, who is one of the members of the APSI Australian demo team. And uh, he's a, an avid uh, technical skier, great ski instructor, been doing it for many years. And um, so I'm here today to just ask him a few questions about his experience and um, get some insight into what he thinks about skiing. So how are you going, Riley? Good, Tom. Thanks for having me on the on the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bit funny because we, you know, we know each other for for quite a few years. But um, I thought, you know, we've had many conversations over the years, good ones about skiing, uh, technique, and and methods, and and so forth. So I thought this would be a good way to perhaps share some of our conversations and ideas with with the rest of the com- skiing community. Yeah, so, it sounds good. Yeah. So, firstly. Um, can you give us a background, give us some background experience on yourself? So like your certs, when you, how you just give us a bit of a story about how you got into skiing in the first place. Okay. Yeah. Well, I started skiing when I was three. Um, my dad took me to, I think it was Parisher, got a little photo of me cruising around in a, in a blue one piece. <laughs> Didn't do too much skiing. He just kept on, you know, pushing me up and down the hill. So yep. that was about that was about it, and um, yeah, my my Omar, she's from Salzburg, and she came over just after World War Two to America, and she opened up a ski um, chalet in Vermont, and so that meant my mum was born in America, and that meant that I got to come over to America most summers, and um, we got free season passes with with the lodge the Austria house and yeah it was pretty pretty cool just go cruise around with my cousins and yeah grew up skiing at a little resort called Okimo in Vermont yeah and um so that's when I started instructing when basically I think when my um my Omar sold the lodge we couldn't get free season passes anymore so yep my mum was like you have to now work for your season pass and <laughs> I think that's 15 and I started um, doing instructor helper just so skiing behind a uh, some kids uh, instructor group and picking up the kids basically and so I did my level one then yep and uh, yeah basically liked doing it so I kept on doing my certification and um, did my level one two and three uh, PSIA and I did my level four APSI and continued on from there and and um, yeah, I think in when when was the selection for the two inter ski teams ago? For the two, that was in two thousand and seven. Seven. Yep, two thousand seven. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that means that I was yeah twenty when I got selected for the for the for the first, first demo team demo team thing. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, and I've been on it since then. Cool. And doing examining and um, and being a trainer in the Australian APSI since then. So it's been great. Yeah, nice. So um, I guess how did you find the difference between going from being trained in the PSIA or one certification system and then going across to the APSI and and um, you know what were your motives behind you know switching? Was it to become a trainer in the APSI? Was it to you know expose yourself to different techniques? What was it? 
Well, I was just very interested in in technique, and um, and I really just wanted to listen and know what you know people thought about skiing, and that was basically it. I was just interested in it. Yep. And um, so I did my CSCF um, race coach level one as well, just because I was interested in in, uh, in what they had to say and. And now with YouTube and um, and yeah, basically just lots of ski information out there. You can filter through the stuff and and yeah, just kind of decide what you like and what you don't like. And it's more it was just basically more out of interest rather than anything. I'm very interested in in many different things, not just skiing, but like a huge variety of things. And I do a lot of reading and research into a whole yeah all of bunch of different eclectic things, really random stuff. Yeah. But anyway, I'm just an interested person in general. Sure. And and I know like um, something that's influenced your like um, technical style and the way you kind of go about approach your training and the way you ski was an injury. Um, so can you just give us a bit of info about that injury, you know, how it happened, what, what exactly happened and how it influenced you know, the way you trained after that point? Yeah, well, I, when was it? must have been in 2008. So, yeah, a long, fair, fair while ago, many seasons ago now because I've been doing double seasons. But, um, yeah, I had a back injury. And it actually didn't really come from anything. Um, I wasn't really skiing that hard the first time I did it. I was doing a basic parallel, I think. Uh, yep. And I just felt like a really excruciating pain in my, um, yeah, basically in my upper butt cheek and it locked up my whole back. But because it was in my butt cheek, I didn't know what it was. And I went to the, the you know, the doctor and they said it wasn't anything, And but I couldn't really walk. Yeah. And, yeah, so anyway, after a certain amount of time, I got an MRI on it and found out that I had three... Um, yeah, bulging discs, and one of them was uh, being a culprit of pressing on my right sciatic nerve. And um, anyway, so I started physio with the Australian ski team physio Simon Roos, who's uh, you know was for the World Cup athletes, which was really cool. And he and he's the one that actually kind of inspired me, um, and kind of gave me a little bit of a nudge in the right direction on on just starting to get more into um yeah how the the body works under load yep because um you know as we know with skiing the when you crank a gs turn or something and your hips on the snow the amount of force that's coming through your outside leg i think some i've read some papers on it having upwards of three g's and if you think about three times your your body weight being forced down through your spine, down through your leg, down to the the base of your foot as you're doing through the centripetal force, it's a it's a fair bit of load to deal with. And um, basically, just putting your body in the right position so that you can deal with the load the most efficient in the most efficient manner. And that's kind of what set me off on it was the back injury and. And a lot of research with many different um, doctors and physios, and you know people who are you know Olympic trainers. When I was in Argentina, one of the Olympic um, uh, weightlifting 
and physical trainers, I trained with him and we, you know, got talking a lot about this stuff as well. So it's, it's been a, yeah, you know, a journey since then of just learning about, and it's not only just about the back, I've like it was about the back because it happened to me, but it made me interested in like, oh, what about the knee? And what, because knees are a huge, big, um, a big, you know, cause of injury as well. Yep. And it kind of, yeah, went from there. And I'd basically been in the gym ever since and, and trying to perfect different movements and, and ways to be strong enough to deal with the way that I want to be able to ski. Okay. Yeah, perfect. And so I know you've kind of, uh, you've been pretty creative in making up some of your own exercises, seeing, I guess, imbalances or um, inefficient movements. And you've kind of come up with some of your own ways of training certain, you know, your body to move in certain ways. Can you give us like an example of, um, you know, maybe one or two of the exercises you've done and how it, how that relates back into your skiing position or your this idea of getting yourself in a really good, strong position to deal with the the forces. Okay, well, the first one that that I was that Simon Roos really got me to uh, to do was um, yeah, find a neutral spine. So mm-hmm. basically, as as you know, but I'll explain for other people that are going to listen is maybe they might not know but the obviously the spine is the vertebrae stacked up on top of each other with the bones and then in between each bone there's a, a disc and it gives you know it's a, got a hard outer surface and it's got like a, a squishy inner surface like, like um, inside like kind of like toothpaste or something and um, or gel and yep. basically that gives us like because we have these kind of like you know balloons in between each spine, it gives us a lot of range of movement. Well, it's designed to give us a range of range of movement so that our spine can bend and twist and and do all these things for movement. Because if we didn't have that, then we'd just be a big block and yep. we just kind of move as a unit. So it's it's really cool for day to day activities. But um, as soon as a severe amount of load gets gets applied like you do in a ski turn or like you say if you're in the gym doing, you know, power lifts or anything like that, um, if there's any kink in it or any type of twisting or kink or, or you know, movement side to side, it can kind of, if you can imagine like a, uh, yeah, like a, a water balloon, if you can press it from top to bottom evenly, it, it's, it squidges out the sides evenly. Yep. If you press it on one side more, it's going to push out to one side. And if you press it too hard, it's going to pop. Yep. So basically, um, you know, everyone has different thresholds of how much load they can, you know, if you look at power lifters, some guys can lift ridiculous loads even with bad form and and um, still get away with it. But it just all, like everyone's totally different and it's a, and, it's a, and that's what I've learned is that I have to really be conscious of how much my body can deal with and only stay within that realm and don't, don't go past that because that's when the injury that's when I was um injuring myself yep and really focusing on having a stacked spine so that I'm pressing evenly on the discs not from one side or the other like having a kink in the spine yep and um so if, if you can imagine like a deadlift you have yep. to keep a new spine but you can still pivot forward from the waist so like the, the sitting bones like or the 
at the hip flexors, but yep. keeping the, the pelvis neutral and then the spine stacked on top of it. So you can do a deadlift and have a full range of movement forward depending on how flexible you are and still keep a neutral spine and deal with load in the most efficient way. Obviously, there's micro adjustments when you're skiing. Like it's not, it's not going to be exactly perfect. Yep. You can, I don't, because we're only human. But having that goal, I see myself on video and stuff, and I'm always trying to correct it. Having that goal of having um, a position where the load is distributed evenly through the whole body. Yeah. So, yep. like the first exercise was was learning how to bend forward properly like and pick things up and that's what I incorporate into my skiing so you know deadlifts was a simple one to do learning yep. correct and monitoring myself in the mirror and making sure that my spine was um, neutral as I pivoted forward from the, the the hips or hinged forward from the hips however yep. you want to explain it and um, and then getting bringing that into uh, separation so having the the counter or set whatever word you want to describe it so the pelvis basically facing the outside of the turn um yeah so that you can so that i could create angulation while maintaining a neutral spine yep and um yeah so as you know what we do in the gym like those you know inside butt lifts and and steps single leg steps and moving from foot to foot um, while creating a uh, range of movement laterally with the hip. Yep. It's hard to, hard to explain without demonstrations over a podcast. Uh, yeah. Um, but these are, yeah, just explaining what I've been doing. Yeah, so so start like, but the, the, the best first one you started with was just learning how to hinge from the hips and, and the deadlift was, I guess, an exercise you put quite a bit of effort into perfecting and really paying attention of how you moved um, yep. while doing a that deadlift exercise. and actually a squat because a yep. squat's a perfect one in a full range or like an overhead squat or, um, you know, when you do snatches even. A snatch is a really good one, I think, to train your body to, sh- um, to absorb properly like in the moguls yep. because you're, you know, basically absorbing and getting underneath the bar so that you can um, – you know, do an overhead squat. Yep. And it's, it's a good way to really correctly, if, it, if done correctly, to, to correctly absorb without, um, you know, curving the spine. Yes. And, and, yeah, basically, yeah, so that your back can stay in a safer position. At a, because when you're skiing at a really high pace through moguls, there's a lot of force as well. And if you get off a little bit, then, then it can, you know, you can cause injuries. Yeah. So, did so you, yeah, the first one was bending forward at the hip correctly. Yeah. 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 Cool. And did you notice, like, directly um, after sort of working on these um, positions and movements in the gym, you could feel it affect positively affect your skiing when you got back on the slopes? Definitely. Learning how to um, bend forward correctly. Um, without curving the spine or rounding the spine out or even creating, you know, hyperlordosis, having more lordosis. You don't want to – obviously, there's both ways. You don't want to be rounding the spine out and you don't want to be sticking your butt out the back either. Yeah. It's you know, finding the, that that middle position. Where, middle position, yeah, the middle position of your spine. So once I once I correctly have found that in the gym and applied it to my skiing, um, 
it definitely frees your hips up more to uh, yeah get a greater range of movement with your legs mm-hmm. for like edge exercises. Um, you know, if you want to get your hip all the way to the snow, or if you want to um, you know do very fast short turns and have you know that separation that you need to to bounce over the downhill on the outside ski so that you can get the um, you know the deflection and the power out of the ski. Yeah. It's definitely a huge effect in, in that realm, yeah. Yeah. And so I know one of the um, so areas of skiing you like to focus on is short turns and sort of um, can you explain like what, what your goal is in a short turn, what you think a really good short turn is and, and what you're working on in your short turns currently? Okay. Well, I mean, basically I love uh, skiing moguls. <laughs> yeah. So a short turn basically is a for me is an extension of a mogul turn or yep. a, yeah in skiing in the mogul so um I work in Aspen here and there's a lot of moguls and probably you know because it doesn't snow a whole lot in Aspen you end up skiing a lot of moguls and um and it's something that I grew up skiing a lot as well in yep. Vermont I just I just like you know playing in the moguls very playful and it's yeah, yeah, something that I really enjoy. So a short turn for me is basically geared towards a you know a hybrid mogul turn. Yep. And that's what has always kind of been for me. But trying to get the performance, you know, more of a slalom performance to get that um, you know that phantom mogul feeling. So like a slalom turn has definitely has that that type of um, sensation as well. Yeah. So I like I like skiing moguls fast, and I like the, um, you know, the sensation of being foot to foot very fast as well, like quick feet. Yep. So, so uh, yeah, basically a short turn is an extension of skiing moguls in your and mind. That's what I, yeah, in my mind, yep. and that's what I um, kind of have in mind when I go to a short turn is foot to foot movement, fast, um, exciting, yeah, and having absorption like I do. In the moguls, because yep. it's a yeah. So why do you think that is um, necessary to have that kind of absorption, like you would see a mogul skier when they hit a big bump, that kind of low position in the middle of a, a short turn? Well, for for one on groomed, it definitely creates you know you can get on edge much earlier. You can have the skis higher on edge because you're closer to the snow, and as your legs move away from you, then the edge is already there. You don't need to come up and then edge again. Yeah. And so that means that you can choose where you need to um, pressure the ski and, um, you know, it all. I guess for me it's all tactical at that stage, deciding where how round I need the turn to be or how straight I need the turn to be. So if I'm yep. in a low position and the ski travels away, I'm on that edge, all I need to do is stand on the ski and the ski's going to, like, come back or gradually increase the pressure and, and round out the turn and make it a you know a bit more of a rounder turn. Whatever the, the goal is at the time, I find that that's always staying lower in the transition enables me to do that. Yep. Yeah, um, cool. And I know uh, you're you're sort of playing around like pushing your limits in terms of um, kind of faster short turns. What are some tactics or tools you're using to play with that kind of tempo of a short turn 
Well, I know you were you were using a metronome. Yeah, yeah. So coming from a music background, like I was studying that in university for a bit, music and um and growing up playing guitar and doing lots of um you know technical work in guitar, you do a lot of metronome work. So you know, grouping up threes or fours and per per beat. So practicing for speed really when you're playing technical stuff. Um so yeah, for you know, the last I don't know how long, a fair few years now, um, I decided to apply that for my video training. So I do video training and I'll and I'll do a you know, put a metronome behind it. Yep. And just and it's a way for me to monitor foot speed. Yep. Essentially. So um you know, every time I'd get video training, I would see, I would just mark it with a metronome and see. Um, obviously, I've got a lot of videos, video that I haven't put up that's very fast, but it's kind of you know, it's pretty crazy skiing. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think pushing the envelope for foot speed for me is has definitely um, increased uh, performance in the moguls. Yeah. So that's kind of where it's come from. Is is um, you know foot-to-foot movement and, and doing a lot of sprinting when I was a kid, it's, um you know, foot-to-foot movement for me was always fun. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, yeah, yeah it's exciting course. and it's fun. That's why I do it. <laughs> so what uh, sort of what sort of beats per minute tempo are you kind of working on at the moment or what have you kind of your different sort of tempos you've got, I guess, for different um, performances? Yeah, well, so... At about 80 BPM is a nice round, um, slow, short turn. Yep. So it's good for, you know, a, a demonstration clean, you know, it's not a pure carved or it's not really exciting. And, you know, 85 is starting to get a bit more exciting. But at the moment I've felt comfortable cruising at around 92 to 95 BPM Um for like a you know a demonstration short turn even and some of the stuff I have on video is at a, about 105 bpm. Yeah, really the the fastest stuff I have. Yeah, and so people but, people know it would be like what if you were to go boom 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 like left foot right foot left foot. What would 105 be in your head like? How what would it how would it sound like? Yeah, probably like dum 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 dum. Right, left, yeah. So that's pretty quick if you can imagine someone skiing down, sort of hitting that sort of uh, that tempo. Yeah, yeah. cool. And that's, I do that with my mogul skiing a lot as well. So um, some of the like some video that I have is up to 150 BPM in the moguls. Yeah, wow, <laughs> that's awesome. If if uh, you haven't seen Riley ski in the bumps or ski short turns. Just look up Riley McGlashan on YouTube. You'll um, get an idea of uh, how all his training and his ideas come together and create a pretty awesome picture on the snow. So, um, yeah, 150 at some points, that's very fast. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, timing, I was timing some of the World Cup skiers like Dale Begg-Smith and those guys on their videos, and I noticed some of them getting up to 190. Wow. So or 180, I can't remember exactly, but it was a lot. It was like... You know, if, I was like, "Whoa, that, it's it's really fast, yep. really really fast." Like so, it's, do you think it's um like a really good training technique 
to be to have something like that tempo and sort of push it be like you go out there and you're like right I'm going to try and you know even though I'm only really comfortable at say you know 85 I'm going to see if I can you know hit some you know if this is someone you're teaching you know we're going to see if we can hit some 100 BPM type short turns do you think that's a really good training effect? I, I think it can be to a certain extent obviously like because what I would do with guitar would be um, this is I've just applied the stuff that I did with guitar yep. really skiing and what I'll do with guitar would be you know pl- practicing really 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 slow um, super super slow is obviously the best way to dial in like perfect technique so if you're yep. doing say with a guitar you're doing you know grouping three notes per beat and at doing like 40 um, beats per minute is very slow yep. and um, but I would always then do the opposite I would go up and even if it was sloppy which is not great for your technique but you get your mind in used to um, moving your fingers that quickly it doesn't yep. sound good but then dial it back again and just kind of f- switch back and forth and usually as um, as I went the the yeah, I could feel my threshold of um, playing cleanly go up all the time with playing slow and playing fast. And then somewhere in the middle, it would probably be really, really, you know, clean and nice. And every time I would play it at speed, it would gradually go up, um, increase in speed at a, with a, you know, clean playing. And that's kind of what I've been doing with my skiing. It, sometimes a little bit crazy at the very high, high end, but every time I'd, I'd I do it, my high end gets higher and my cleanless clean end gets higher as well. Yep. Yeah, cool. So if that makes any sense, yeah. I don't know. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, I mean, I guess if, um, you know, someone watches like a video of yours and sees the level of skiing short turns and long turns and bumps and they're like, wow, I'm never going to get there. Like, can you can you look back and, you know, remember a time when you were not that great and you know what you like sort of how much effort you put in to you know improve your skiing like do you remember not always being good at short turns and bumps if you're serious about stepping up your skiing skills listen up i've been working closely with the carve team for over four years and they've just unveiled a groundbreaking feature active coaching mode And here's the lowdown. Launch it at the top of your run and go through a quick calibration with 10 turns. And it sets a baseline just below your current skill level. From there, every turn is a challenge, adapting on the fly to your skill, terrain, and conditions. No fluff, just a gamified experience pushing you to ski better every turn. It does this by using a super thin insole lined with small pressure sensors and motion detectors. It's like having a personal coach analyzing your every move. And here's the sweet part. If you hit a hot streak with excellent form and you're in for double or triple points, it's addictive, rewarding. Like I said, it's a very gamified experience and it transforms every run into a step towards better skiing. If you're intrigued, and you should be, check out Carve and dive into active coaching mode. Just Google Get Carve to find out more and as a bonus, enter code GELLY15 to take 15% off. It's amazing. I've heard from the Carve team that now nearly over a third of the users are using active coaching mode when they go out and ski with it. So why not give it a try yourself? Yeah. 
Like, um, of course. <laughs> and I think I feel like that right now. Every day I go out and I, and I look at video or whatever and I'm like, ah, I see a lot of stuff that I'm always trying to work on. And I think that's kind of like the cool thing about skiing is that it's, um, that for me it's like a, that what keeps it interesting for me doing, you know, 230 or 240 days a year of skiing is that it, um, no matter what, I can always look at myself and say, all right, got to go work on that or, you know, got to go work on this. And it's always been the same though. Back then I was like, oh, I really want to get to that level. And then you, and then you start doing that stuff at that level and you're like, you know, like, oh, I really want to be level, level four. And then yep. you pass level four and you're like, oh, and then you realize that, you know, it was just, it's still like a journey and you keep going. So, um, I, th- I think as a avid technical skier, that's someone who's very interested in, in learning and progressing their technique is more not, not worrying about getting to a certain level. It's more enjoying the process of, of, of getting there. Yeah. Because no matter what, even when you get there, you haven't got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you use, like, you use <laughs> um, obviously we talked about sort of uh, indoor training, gym training, that sort of stuff. And then you mentioned a bit about video, like how important do you think video analysis is going out, you know, having a specific goal in mind and then videoing and analyzing yourself. How, how, how important do you think that is? I think it's probably the most important thing for me personally, for me training, because like, um, you know, as we, you know, as you have brought up in some, um, you know, back a fair few years ago in trainers coordination and and all that, like bringing in more external cues because internal cues are misleading as everyone, everyone knows and in every sport, like as you brought into the presentation, um, you know, external cues um, basically can give you a rep, like a representation of where you need to move, and or yeah. how you need to move. But even still, an external cue um, I think needs to be doubled up with video training so that you can really perfect that. And that's what, um, yeah, I think video for me is like a crucial part of of uh, improving. Even when I do, I feel myself doing. All bunch of crazy stuff, just to see what it looks like. Yeah, none of the stuff on YouTube or will ever get onto YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> like it's gym stuff, I film myself in the gym doing weird stuff, and I have people looking at me in the gym going, "What the? What's he doing?" Yeah, um, like weird stretches and yep. weird movements just for that I've kind of developed for my ski technique. Yeah, trying to move in certain ways. Yeah, I guess because. So, Going back to that internal and external type cue, what you may think you'd be doing, so an internal cue being trying to feel something in your body like you're trying to internally rotate your outside leg, for instance, would be an internal cue because you're basing it on a feeling inside your body. You don't have a reference outside in the environment to gauge whether that has been achieved. Um, Whereas if you were to think about, you know, pointing your thigh, your outside thigh towards the trees on the left-hand side of the run and then the other thigh to the trees to the outside of the of, of the other side of the run, that would be more of an external cue so you can gauge whether you've achieved that that result. Yeah. So, I, so I guess you playing around with these weird things is you going feeling maybe an internal 
type sensation like oh I'm feeling you know my hip move this way at the at the apex of the turn I'm going to try that in some weird stretches and video it and see if that's actually what's going on is that kind of what you're doing yeah exactly like for me I can I'm very good at feeling stuff like I can feel exactly what my body's doing yeah but for me it's been a it's still a work in progress of filming with a feeling in mind so I can um connect the feeling with what actually is happening yeah because I can feel it but I I've tried to like cut out every image in mind of what I think I'm doing and just film a feeling and yep. then and then I look at the video and I'm like that's what that feeling is and I try and connect that with the with the feelings and that's what's been a a good way to train my feelings yeah. because external, you can train like external cues are, are easy. You go like, okay, I need to um, drag my pole, my outside yep. pole about three feet away from my boot um, to keep my angulation or whatever. Yeah. But then you, then you film it and you see your hips all out of whack and you're doing weird stuff and you've got spinal angulation and that's not good. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, filming – feelings so that I can connect the feelings with the actual actually the visual what's going representation on. of what's happening. Yeah. And that's been the biggest thing for me filming because like the external cues are all right, got that, cool. I can I can aim my knee or whatever or yep, do, drag your pole. You know, yeah, do all those things. But then um the next step I've felt for me has been connecting feelings with um results. Yeah. Yeah. Through video training. Yep. So can you give an example of like what someone could try and do, say perhaps, you know, like uh, maybe an exaggerated example of a movement they could try in their skiing to film like a, a silly one to see whether they're, you know, and then video and see whether it's actually, you know, actually representing what they're feeling. Like, um, like is there one you've been doing? Um, uh I'm not sure. I've been playing. I do so many different weird things that <laughs> like a, ver- a lot of very weird things. One that I've been doing lately for actually warming up, and it's just to get relaxed and um and to increase range of movement, kind of like a dynamic stretch, is kind of fully counter rotating across, and so basically my my hips are turning around my femurs yep. and trying to go from side to side, so my body's facing pretty much directly outside the turn and then as I start the new turn, twist the toe opposite way. This is not how I want to ski but it's it's a warm-up to try and increase um, range of movement in my hips and twist all the way to the other side and then back and forth and gradually increase edge as I'm doing it. So yep. at the start, it's just tiny little edge rolls. Yeah. And then as I go down, just staying super relaxed um, because obviously, you know, when you're relaxed, you can um, increase range of movement much easier. So very relaxed, and all the hips are doing is twisting back and forth. Yep. Across. I'm not trying to twist the spine. So wherever my hips finish, that's where I finish the the rotation. Obviously. Yep. Um, and moving, and that's a very exaggerated move. So you're basically creating that separation or counter or whatever you want to call it um, by twisting your hip over your femur yep. and doing it with a very, very flat ski. So you're not actually – you kind of start off going down the hill just straight. Yeah. And you gradually increase and then um, as you start gradually increasing, you start moving 
into a ski position and then obviously stop doing that movement so much and um and I've found that it increases the range of movement that my hips can move or my legs can move under my hips. Yep. Yeah, cool. So that could be something someone could play around with. I guess just the message is, you know, get a feeling that you think is going to achieve a result, video it and and check. See if um see if what you're feeling actually comes out um as doing what yeah. you you're hoping is uh, it should be doing. What's that? So yeah, videoing videoing a strange movement or a feeling that you're trying to actually see if it's if it's working or not, rather than just continually doing something and not actually having a reference as to whether it's working or not. You know, yeah. you could be, you could so be going down the wrong road. Yeah. So that that filming that movement and doing it extreme to actually see if it's how extreme it really is. Yeah. Yeah. You never know how much you're actually doing something until you film it. Because yeah. you feel like you're doing heaps of it and then you look at the video and you're like, I can't even tell the difference between what I did last run and that run and it feels like a huge difference. Yep. So, so um, yeah. yeah, awesome. Um, I was going to ask you uh, about Interski in St. Anton in 2011, so the first Interski you went to. Um, what did you find you got from this event? Um, and I guess for people who maybe I'm not too sure, Interski is... Uh, a congress that happens every four years and each country that uh, has a skiing association basically sends a team um, to this congress to share ideas about teaching methodology, skiing technique, um, any, anything, lots of things to do basically with the sport of, of skiing. And not only can uh, people, so the top skiers from each association go, but anyone from the public can go to these events um, if they would like to, but yeah, Riley, what did you gain from going to Interski in St. Anton? Like, what did you, did you find anything inspiring? Did you come away working on something? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I got to ski with a fair few of the teams and, you know, obviously with the night shows, we got to watch all of the other teams and I went out with the Korean team. Um, Paulie and I actually went out with the Korean team uh, and we had a really, yeah, it was a really uh, fun clinic because it, it actually was more just based on on skiing. There was like some other clinics we went to; they you know do teaching things and and um, you know which was also very interesting. But they went through there because the top guys that went to Interski for Korea were not actually instructors; they were demonstrators. So they were. Um, you know, guys that got selected as demonstrators from doing their technical skiing competitions. Yep. So they actually didn't really teach people how to ski. None <laughs> the top dem- the top demonstrators don't do that over there apparently, according to according to them, according yep. to this clinic that I went on. So these guys were just pure demonstrators and they just do technical competitions. And for the people who don't know what that is in Japan and Korea, they have these competitions where they just are judged on their technique, um, going doing short turns and long turns and rhythm change and moguls. And, um, yeah, basically the we Paulie and I went out with the two top guys that were n- number one and number two in that years or the, the year before's um skiing competition. competition. Yep. So they went over basically exactly what they do 
to train for it for the you know those four different things that they have to that they're judged on yeah so it was just basically a skiing thing and because actually they didn't really speak any english we had a translator there who was just um <laughs> who also you know it was he could speak english well but it was still ba- at a basic level yep um so, so what so what sort of things did you find interesting about the about them sort of showing you their their skiing training their or you know what they're working on these technical well, skiers. It was, it was their short term was even more exaggerated uh, flexion, and it was it actually looked like they were doing like they were skiing moguls when they came down. Yeah. So it was pretty inspiring to see that because my short term that I've been working for a long time has been geared towards moguls. Yeah. So and they showed us a few extra really cool drills that they do for to get that short turn. And yeah, I've been incorporating those into my skiing ever since. Um, yeah, slightly different, just very, very different because their hip positions are a little bit different. They uh, their hip inclines a little bit and twists around, and they they're not too disciplined with that. Yep. So trying to have the same exercises but with a bit more of a disciplined hip. Yep. The most inspiring thing was that the speed that they did everything at, like how fast they went into their long turns and how fast they went, like the speed that they went into their short turns with. And so as also, in you mean like speed down the hill? Yeah, down the hill. Um, it was very, it was much faster than I was, than I was expecting. Yeah. So we got, I got to follow them a few times going down the hill. Also just um, the strength and consistency that they had, that these two guys had especially, um, when we followed them down steep icy pitches in St. Anton, it was really, yeah. it was really uh, cool and inspiring to watch. Just, yeah, um, yeah very consistent and, and just very strong. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. So I guess then, um, so there are some skiers that inspired you. What do you see the best skiers sort of on the World Cup at the moment? What do you see in their skiing that you know sets them apart from the rest of the pack? Well, I mean, at the moment, it's besides his few inconsistencies, Hersher is pretty much, yeah, skiing the best technically, I think. Like, what do, you see, what do you see in his technique that you really l- like? I really like um, basically how he, his um, counter, the what we. Now the basic position, what we call in Australia, as you know, um, yep. the basic position that he skis into, especially this year. The last few years, I think this year he's skiing into the basic position better. The last few years he's been bluffing it a little bit with a little bit of spinal rotation and spinal angulation. And this year, um, you can I've been freeze framing and freeze framing him on um, in a lot of sections and I've got a lot of photos of them actually with totally neutral spine, no spinal angulation, no twisting of the spine whatsoever. Yeah. And um in slalom mostly because in GS if you get too close to the gate and you need to clear the gate, obviously there's that rotation yep. that happens as a result of trying to clear the gate, not because it's what not because it's yep. the right thing to do for your spine, but it's a, a necessity of trying to win the race. Yep. Um, it's not an actual thing. Like if there was no gate there, they wouldn't they would do that. They would be doing that, yep, yep. 
and also that there would be like way less back injuries on the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, an interesting point. <laughs> so, but in his slalom, because he's you can cross block and you don't need to have that um, that his even though he's a bit inconsistent, I think his slalom technique and his hip position especially has changed dramatically since last year. Now it's more natural. Yeah. And it's actually, yeah, something, I think he's getting the best at the moment for sure. And the the run, as a demonstration run, the run from Neurider in order in Sweden this year was ridiculous. The two runs that he had, especially the second run, um, the discipline that he had in his upper body and, um, yeah, it was it was really cool to watch. Yeah, and that's what the like those guys are doing is you can see the their legs working underneath them and their upper body is totally stable in yep. sound especially. Yeah, yeah, it looks like he's really increased his like mobility and um, ability to kind of work around his hips. Like his hips seem to have just um, yeah changed this year. I think he's been doing. He did a lot of CrossFit, didn't he? And a lot of yeah. like kind of cross training, really um, putting his body through lots of different kind of like movements. I guess challenging that hip joint to work at lots of different angles. Yeah, exactly. And also, you see him. Um, I follow him on on Facebook and uh, Instagram and and YouTube, so I get to see a lot of. And obviously, other ski racing websites that upload stuff, and you see him doing. He does a pretty intense warm-up uh, routine before he does, you know, races or or training and stuff as well. So just activating different muscles and moving in different ways. Yep. Which you know probably contributed to um, increasing range of movement while skiing, also. Yep. Yep. No, it's really cool to watch some of the yeah. Just I don't know if you saw that. Um... Uh, the the run Michaela Schifrin had I think in Zagreb in um, Croatia is that the one? Yeah, that that was an awesome run as well. Yeah, like that that to me brings up the same kind of image of just like really floating down the hill with this really smooth, stable upper body and and just really precise with kind of the feet and and that. Um, transition position just really kind of compact and and relaxed though yeah and and the hip position especially yeah yep getting the like at that at that point of kind of maximum edge like getting that hip position in a really strong stable way yeah yeah exactly no she's when she's on it's yeah it's ridiculous yeah so um i was gonna ask you about equipment how important is equipment for you, like the type of ski, the boot flex, that sort of stuff? Um, it's pretty important depending on what I'm doing, really. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I've been skiing in the actual just a three buckle Dalbello, um, the Krypton, yeah, for a, few, a fair few seasons now, and I I really like it, it because it's uh, for me. I'm 170 centimeters, so I'm pretty short. Yeah. Um, I have a, you know, I go to the gym a lot, and I have a lot of muscle in my leg and especially my calf, and it sits in my boot, so it acts as a extra spoiler. So the, um, you know, I need a straighter boot 
otherwise I'm way over flexed and I, you know, can't find the center of the ski properly. Yeah. I can, but it's just, you know, it's just more work. More work, yeah. So this boot actually has been really good because I can straighten it up. I think it, the straightest it goes to is eight degrees um, and I have it on the straightest point that I possibly can and that seems to be uh, an area where I can ski the best from because yep. I've had like they've got lots of video from with boots that are very flexed and um, yeah and it's it's I can still ski in the center but it's just harder yep. harder to find it yep. and I yeah find myself off balance a little bit yeah a little bit more easily than than this boot now but I and it's also for teaching it's very easy to get on and off but if I could <laughs> choose a boot um, to that I could really do all the work to and straighten the cuff and do all the stuff that I need to. I, I like have, I like skiing in a stiff boot. Yep. Um, for groomed snow. Yep. But now that I've been skiing this one, it's one thirty, but it's probably at the moment how much I've skied in it is probably like maybe a one twenty. But I really like this boot actually in the moguls and the off piece. So I don't know. I think if I was just going to do you know just groomers, I would ski in a one fifty. Yeah, and then if I had the luxury of changing, I would ski in this boot in the off piece, which I'm, which I have right now. It's because it's just very comfortable to hit bumps hard. Yeah, and and it yeah, it's it's really nice actually. Yep, because um, something that's um, perhaps maybe different to some skiers um, in terms of their perception of balance is a lot of the time you are just trying to be in the center of your foot, aren't you? Like in a lot of yeah. points in the turn right over the arch because i i mean in the actually tr- trying to get further back of the arch even because from what all the gym training that i do um if you do a squat and you drive through your toes it's bad for your knees and it's un- and it's not as stable um you meant to drive through your heels so but that decreases range of movement on the heel as well because it's more stable. So I found that the back of the arch is a place where I can have the most stability but still have the range of movement that I need to in my hip and my in my leg to yep. make turns, but it gives me the stability that I need to deal with a lot of force Yep. yep. as well. So like so, what if you're on snow and you happen to find, like what happens, what do you feel if you get off that point of the arch like say you you lever too much on the front of the foot uh yeah i have that problem a lot i always like to get really far forward and um and yeah i get too far forward and all of a sudden all my weight's on the either the ball of the foot or the toe or something because i've moved you know made an incorrect movement and um if I'm doing a, like a more of a not a pure carved turn, but if I'm trying to guide the, the ski or you know do a carved turn, what we call in, in the APSI, where we're leaving a very a narrow track but not a pure carved track that's even the whole way around, yeah. um, you know the tail will wash out just because I'm, I pivot too far on the, on the tip of the ski. Yep. So I find that happens if I get a little bit too, you know, gung ho about it. Like, well, let's go. Yep. Yep. So yeah, middle of the foot and that boot you've got, you said, is something that's helped you kind of um, achieve that because it doesn't push you so far forward. 
Yeah, well, if when I was in a more flex boot, I just had to bend at the knee way more. Yeah, and I was like, my hips were really far back, and it was just much more fatiguing on on my quads, which I could definitely do, and it was yeah. more of a workout. The more flex I have, the lower I can go at a you know at the transition and stay and stay over the ski. Yeah. So it's a it's a bit of a compromise. The same in the moguls. The more forward lean I have, the the more range of movement I'm um, absorption I'm going to have whilst keeping the tip down over cool. the backside. Yeah. So it's it's just a compromise of what what I want to do. But I found that this boot at the moment is is a yeah a good median where I you know I'm not going to be doing a full on World Cup mogul turn down the down the moguls, but I can still do a a good short turn and a good carb turn and and um yeah in a, in a strong position. Yep. So um, I guess finally, do you have any sort of parting advice for skiers out there, you know, budding technical skiers, but um, ski instructors going for perhaps their next level? Um, any advice that would help them, you know, perhaps break through to the next level, um, like your mental approach, drills, skill focus, um, you know, anything like that? Uh, yeah, well, I guess, it de- I guess it depends on what certification you're doing. So just listen to what the trainers say you need to do to pass. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and because every, I mean, yeah, it's hard to comment for every single certification from, from going into ski, you see all the difference, uh, in technique and, and what they believe and all that stuff. And it, you know, it's very, very different from person to person, from country to country. So, um, obviously, if you want to pass your exams, follow what you need to do for your exams. But, um, I mean, for me, growing watching skiers that inspired me has been the uh, the number one thing that's um, motivated me. And and I see people like skiers that I want to ski like. That's kind of where my um, training has come from. Is yep. You know, when you get to a full cert, you can do a lot of drills or whatever, and there's a lot of drills in every manual and in our manual. But I've been inventing drills and inventing that are, haven't that are definitely not in any manuals and yep. and ways to do things that only come from uh, yeah, basically just seeing something and working it out in your own skiing, and then inventing a drill to replicate or an external cue to replicate what you're not doing in compared to the other person yep. that you that you need to do in the yep. person that inspires you. Yep. So just being, you know, being a creative thinker I think is the the biggest thing. That's what's helped me is like trying to problem solve. Just yep. what can I do for this and what can I do for that? And if I don't get enough time training um skiing like some people doing holidays don't, then, you know, incorporating day-to-day movements and daily movements in and and keep a skiing focus in mind. So when you do certain movements, um, you know, obviously visualizing yourself skiing or or creating movements that you would when you're skiing in day-to-day life. Yeah. So, if, you know, like jumping down the street, jumping from foot to foot, um, and then it's hard to show without demonstrating, but I have a bunch of these things that I do at home, like a walk, I've invented a type of little walk thing that that um, is a dynamic stretch for the hip as well, but it's ingraining finer motor control and retraining 
how the pelvis moves. Um, yeah. yeah, so you have to be very conscious of what you're doing yeah. when you do things. So not not just do them for to do them, but do them with a purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good advice. Um, awesome. Well, that sounds uh, sounds good. Sounds like that's uh, people should you know it's definitely beneficial if you take control of your own training and you know be, start to become a little bit of your own coach um, rather than relying always on other people and whether you're doing something looking at other people to um, you know give the approval as to whether you're on the right track so become your own coach yeah. Uh, yeah. cool exactly. so I guess um, if people want to find out more about you and your skiing they can go to your YouTube channel That'd be right. Yeah. Yep. Just yep. Search. I've been working a lot this winter, so I haven't been able to do any filming really. But um, yeah, I mean, the YouTube channel's there. It actually was just set up originally to share with um, the other demo team guys when I first made the the demo team in 2007 as a training tool. So I'd send them the link and they would watch it. And then, um, yeah, I've had a fair few emails or private messages on YouTube to upload more stuff. So it kind of gave me a little bit of, um, you know, a few Motivation. years ago, gave me more of a nudge to make some video edits and stuff. And hopefully, if people like it, I'll keep on doing it. And and uh, yeah, hopefully, it, um, you know, yeah. people like it, they get inspired somehow. That's what it's for. <laughs> I think you should put the funny the the hip mobility walk on there, Riley. I'd be interested to see that. <laughs> I haven't perfected yet. I, when I perfect, I'll have to do it because I'm still I'm still struggling to get it. I've, I've got so, it. I know yep. what I'm meant to be, doing, but I'm still I, working at it. Still working on making it look smooth. Yeah. So you got to get that. Uh, yeah, that that movement movement down so it's um, you know, very smooth and and not goofy looking. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Riley, thanks so much for um, taking the time to uh, chat with me today. And um, yeah, we'll uh, hopefully chat again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. It was, uh, yeah, it was good. Okay. Really good. Cheers. Bye, mate.